Welcome to the Unmade Podcast, looking at media and marketing from an Australian perspective. I'm Tim Burrows. Recently, I published my first book, Media Unmade. It quickly became an Amazon bestseller. It's the story of Australian media's most disruptive decade. It's published by Hardy Grant, and you can buy it at all good bookshops and online. In the coming weeks, I'll be sharing the full audio edition of the book here on the Unmade podcast. Coming up is the next chapter. Now remember, only Unmade's paying subscribers get to hear every chapter. If you haven't already, you can sign up at unmade.media. As well as supporting my work as an independent journalist, you'll receive exclusive industry analysis in both written and podcast form. And once you sign up, you'll still be able to get our paid podcasts inside the app of your choice. It only takes a couple of clicks. Now, on with the book. Chapter 9. World is Fucked. In which Fairfax Media culls a generation of journalists. Gina Reinhardt circles. Revenues plummet. The share price tanks. Broadsheets go tabloid. Paywalls are erected. And a shadow team builds a plan to save the Sydney Morning Herald and the age. White clouds drift in an otherwise blue autumnal sky. The temperature is a pleasant 23 degrees Celsius. It's a great day to be outdoors. At the Domain in Sydney, it's the opening weekend of Fairfax Media's Playground, part of the company's new Spectrum Now Festival, its first big venture since telling the market it is getting into the events business. Across March 2015, Spectrum Now will cover music, film, books, the stage, dance, contemporary art and design. The aim is to tuck into the Sydney event calendar. January's Sydney Festival and February's Laneway Music Festival have already taken place, while May will see the Sydney Writers' Festival and June will feature both the Sydney Film Festival and the Vivid Ideas Festival. It's a festival of festivals. In the Sydney Morning Herald, Fairfax has what appears to be the perfect vehicle to promote Spectrum now. However, other than editorial features in the Spectrum pullout of the Saturday Sydney Morning Herald, the company has not been spending much money on marketing the event. In front of the stage, the grass has already recovered nicely from the 80,000 people who turned out for the annual Carols in the Domain concert three months earlier. This is a venue that can fit a lot of visitors. By lunchtime, the first band is on the stage, which has been designed by the set designer for the Sydney Theatre Company's production of Serrano de Bergerac and built by the engineer who constructed the sets for The Great Gatsby. Actor Richard Roxburgh, director of the festival, has decreed there is to be no white plastic canvas look to the 15 or so upmarket food stalls. Newtown's trendiest bar, Mary's, is flipping the burgers. Messina is scooping the gelato. Sponsor ANZ has built a giant double-height pavilion for its VIP guests, complete with a raised deck to watch the music. The bar, run by fashionable George Street Oyster Bar, the Morrison, 
includes a branded Blue Pass express lane for ANZ's VIPs. It's a hipster paradise. A desolate hipster paradise. I walk around the grounds. Perhaps a couple of dozen visitors are spread around the grass on deck chairs in front of the stage. Nobody is queuing to buy food from the pissed-off stallholders. The ANZ pavilion is empty. There's no need to use the express lane to the bar because there's only one person buying a drink. The Sydney Morning Herald stand appears to have been abandoned. There should be at least 10,000 people here. Across the entire festival site, including staff working on the stalls and behind the bar, I can count 300 at the most. The first project in Fairfax Media's new events strategy is a disaster. The next day, Fairfax offers up a feeble excuse, claiming recent bad weather led to a lower than expected turnout. Considering it was a free event to attend and it wasn't even raining, it raises major questions about whether the company can turn its print audience into event attendees. A commenter on my Mumbrella article about the fiasco sums it up. This is so embarrassing. Did they seriously think two months after Sydney Festival, people were going to flock to this event advertised almost solely in their newspapers? Speaking to so many Sydney-siders, no one knows what this is. Three years earlier, the lost generation. There's no definitively correct answer to exactly when Fairfax Media hit rock bottom, but it was at some point in 2012. Perhaps it came in mid-June, when it began to look like Fairfax's long-treasured editorial independence was under existential threat. Mining billionaire Gina Reinhardt bought a stake of 18.7% in the company and asked for three seats on the board. She was never one for explaining herself publicly, but the only motivation that made sense was that she wanted to turn the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age's centre-left editorial outlook towards her own right-wing views. Satirist Dan Illich created a mocked-up The Sydney Mining Herald homepage featuring headlines like Perth, Australia's real capital, The ABC has too many facts, and Puppy run over by deadly Prius. There was a recent precedent to this concern. Reinhardt had invested in 10 in November 2010, and joined the TV network's board alongside fellow new arrivals Lachlan Murdoch and, briefly, James Packer. Soon after, in May 2011, Andrew Bolt, News Corp's arch-conservative Herald Sun columnist, had been given his own Sunday show. The Bolt report was scheduled straight after the ABC's politics show Insiders, which critics believed was too left-leaning under its host, former Bob Hawke press secretary, Barry Cassidy. Seeing what was already unfolding at 10, the Fairfax board held Reinhardt at bay by insisting that, although she was now the company's biggest shareholder, she could not join the board unless she committed to the company's 1992 Charter of Independence. The charter had been created when interventionist proprietors like Kerry Packer and the corrupt Robert Maxwell were circling. Although the Charter gave the board the right to hire and fire editors, it also gave the editor sole authority over publishing the journalism within an agreed budget. 
New CEO Greg Highwood went public, saying in a radio interview, editorial independence is actually a bedrock of what makes this company what it is. It works as a promise to readers that what we put out doesn't deliver sectional or personal interests to people. Others might nominate the rock bottom moment as coming a week later on 18th of June the day Highwood had made his shock announcement about the company's printing press closures, the 1900 job cuts, and the move to compact-sized editions. Or perhaps it came in the grim weeks that followed that announcement, as reality set in, and some of the most famous names in Australian journalism took redundancies. A small number of star names were warned they wouldn't be allowed to go, even if they applied, but otherwise... Almost all of those who asked for redundancy got it. For those who had been with the company a long time, the payout was large, even if they had a little prospect of earning a similar salary in the future. Most of those who put their hands up got their payouts on the 30th of August. Even when newspapers had closed in previous decades, there'd never been a day when so many of the most respected journalists in the industry left an organisation. Many would never work as journalists again, moving into public relations, academia or early retirement. News site Crikey headlined it as Day of the White Envelope Wipes Out a Generation. While many printers and other backroom staff would lose their jobs, the most visible departures were the journalists. In Melbourne, those departing included Mike Van Niekerk, who had joined the age in 2001 to run its digital operation and had only recently stepped into the role of weekday editor. Associate editor Sean Carney, arts writer Raymond Gill and arts editor Mark Ellis. A picture turned up on Twitter of Ellis turning a cartwheel in the newsroom when he got the redundancy. The tensions between the Sydney-headquartered Fairfax and the Melbourne outpost also bubbled up with the departure of Jane Wilson, editor of The Age's storied food section, Epicure, triggering speculation that coverage for both cities would be centralised. The hashtag SaveEpicure trended on Twitter. Multi-award winning writer Joe Chandler, law and justice editor Farah Farouk, news writer Gary Tippett, social affairs writer Julie Zigo, and former Green Guide editor Nicole Brady, were among other experienced hands let go. Media editor Kirsty Simpson, Melbourne Life editor Lorna Edwards, news editor Andrew Cook, foreign editor Carolyn Jones, education editor Ken Merrigan, racing editor Andrew Eddy, life and style editor Veronica Ridge, green guide editor Andrew Murphy, and iPad editor David Dick were also on the list. So too was the Sunday Age's political editor, Misha Schubert. Behind-the-scenes talent to leave the Melbourne newsroom included The Age's Tom Ormond, who had spent 22 years with the newspaper and carved out a niche as the page one rewrite specialist, and Night News editor Patrick Smithers, who had started at the paper as a cadet decades before and was the charismatic engine of the paper's news coverage. Simon Mann, a former London and Washington correspondent, who colleagues believed should have edited the paper, departed after 28 years with the company. 
His next role was indeed an editorship, as launch editor of The Citizen, an online publication created by the University of Melbourne's Centre for Advancing Journalism. In Sydney, commentator and author David Marr left the Herald in a mad dash in July after taking redundancy at just a few hours' notice when he belatedly learned the tax implications of leaving it until after he turned 65 the next day. Others to depart included social issues writer Adele Horan, who had been writing columns for the Sydney Morning Herald since 1988. In her final column, she recognised the changing publishing landscape, telling readers, I have been paid for my opinions, a privileged way to earn a living, now that opinion is free on the blogosphere and everyone is a commentator. She continued to write her own blog, Coming of Age. She passed away three years later, a few days after telling her readers that her lung cancer had raged back and her luck had run out. Also lost was sports writer Michael Cockrell, who had just been inducted into the Football Federation of Australia Hall of Fame and will pass away in 2017. And foreign affairs specialist Cynthia Bannum, who'd been badly injured in the 2007 Garuda plane crash in Indonesia while reporting for the Sydney Morning Herald, would take the redundancy option and leave journalism for academic studies. Leaving the Sydney Morning Herald business team were Ian Verenda, who would go on to become business editor of the ABC, writer Elizabeth Sexton, personal finance editor Annette Sampson, CBD columnist Scott Rushford, and senior reporter Leonie Lamont, TV critic Doug Anderson, who had been with the paper since 1969, left another huge hole. Others leaving the Herald included veteran crime reporter and author Malcolm Brown, investigative journalist Matthew Moore, media writer Julian Lee, and double Walkley Award winner Greg Bearup. Two of the paper's health team, editor Julie Rowbottom and correspondent Mark Metherall, also took the white envelope. So did arts editor Claire Morgan, along with four of the title's arts writers and crime editor Geesh Jacobson. There were so many more Sydney Morning Herald names. Deputy editor Mark Coulton, executive editor Peter Kerr, education editor Andrew Stevenson, Asia-Pacific editor Hamish MacDonald, four of the Good Weekend magazine writers, opinion editor Joel Gibson, Money Editor, Vita Palestrant, Science Editor, Deborah Smith, and News Review Editor, Fiona McGill. The redundancy stretched to other Fairfax titles too. The Australian Financial Review's Weekend Editor, Roger Johnston, and Foreign Editor, Derry Hogue, both moved on. And the Canberra Times Arts Editor, Diana Streak, Features Editor, Gillian Lord, and Literary Editor, Gia Metherell, all departed. Each individual journalist represented years of accumulated knowledge of and relationships in their beat. But they also represented a huge cost base. Those established staff were often on vastly larger salaries than anybody entering journalism in 2012 could have hoped to achieve during their career. It had been a high quality but expensive way of running a business. Judy Prisk, who a year before had become the Sydney Morning Herald's first reader's editor, with the role of championing editorial standards and being an advocate for the paper's audience, would also be Fairfax's last. 
In one of her final columns before departing, Prisk highlighted another one of the company's key cost-saving initiatives, outsourcing much of the sub-editing. In the remaking of Fairfax's cost base, this was every bit as significant as the departing writing talent. While the disappearance of familiar bylines was readily understandable, the production system of newspapers, which had evolved over more than a century, was less noticeable to the outside world until it was overhauled. For most of the newspaper industry's history, the subs were the unsung heroes and occasionally villains. They set the standards and were the last line of defence against errors. They are also the biggest hidden personnel cost of newspaper production. After a journalist filed an article, it would be scrutinised by a section editor or news editor. Putting themselves in the reader's shoes, the section editor would be the first quality filter, perhaps asking the journalist to go back and do more work if an article was missing information or colour. Depending on how the individual newspaper was structured, the news editor would then assign the article to a particular page. They would be working from a flat plan, a sketch showing each page of the publication and how much space was available for editorial and advertising content in the next edition. The news editor would be trying to ensure there was enough good content on every page while making judgment calls on which article should be the most prominent. Depending on the newsroom culture, that news editor might also take responsibility for editing the draft copy to ensure the story was told as clearly as possible. The basic rule was the journalistic inverted pyramid. Most important fact at the top and least important information at the end so the article could be cut from the bottom to fit the page. Once an article was assigned to a particular page, the layout sub would roughly position it on the page while making decisions around how much space to give the headlines and photographs. After the layout sub would come the copy sub or, depending on the paper, they might be known as the down table sub. They'd be the ones who spent the most time, other than the writer, on crafting the copy, checking it made sense and clarifying any potential errors. Usually the copy sub was a former reporter who'd opted to come off the road. Their background knowledge would be an important stopgap for any errors made by the reporter. They also needed to ensure that the article followed the newspaper's style guide, basics like whether to call people Mr, Mrs or Ms, or simply by their surname, for instance. Whether to use single or double quotation marks. When to capitalise job titles. Even how high a number quoted in an article needed to be before being written as a numeral instead of spelled out. It was all in the style guide. The down table sub would also write the first draft of the headline. There is far more craft to newspaper headlines than meets the eye. They need to fit a specific space and are crucial in enticing a reader into an article. Tabloid papers tended to go for punny headlines, while upmarket papers would go for something more straightforward. Before computers, there was even more of a challenge to writing a headline. The sub would need to calculate its fit based on the individual width of characters. An M takes three times the width of an L in the headline, for instance. The Walkley Awards, the pinnacle of journalism in Australia, acknowledged this skill in an award for best headline writer. Afterwards, the article would pass to a more experienced check sub. They might step in and amend the headline if it wasn't good enough. 
they'd also be a close to final line of defence if there was a legal risk to an article. Why hasn't this person been given a right of reply? Are you sure we can report this fact if the court case is still underway? Often the subs were the people who made the reporters and columnists copy sing. Only after all of those layers of subbing could the pages be sent on to the printers. It was an expensive system with periods of the day where the subs didn't have much to do. One reason for that was because it was a holdover from the days of multiple editions when an entire newspaper might need to be remade in minutes to accommodate a major piece of late-breaking news. Yet these layers of quality control were also a commercial disadvantage for the business model of newspapers competing with the world of digital publishing. Take Mumbrella. The blog I'd started in 2008 as an example. In the early days, I was the only member of the editorial team. I'd write the article, hit publish, and it was live. If there was an egregious spelling error, the readers would point it out in the comments section, and I'd quickly correct it. Never wrong for long. Bloggers had to be their own editor and check sub. Blogging platforms such as WordPress and Blogger took care of the layout automatically. The bloggers needed enough working knowledge of the law and writing experience, often gained in previous roles at newspapers or magazines, to keep out of trouble. Even without factoring in the cost of physically printing and delivering newspapers, the cost of online publishing was a fraction of that of print publishing. And the newspaper subbing system had evolved out of a different time, when the paper had to be produced within the newsroom. At that time, an article would emerge from a journalist's typewriter, one piece of folio paper at a time, before being taken to the section editor and onto the sub-editors by young copy kids. If the reporter was somewhere else, they'd have to file it over the phone to a copy taker. It had only been in the late 1980s and early 1990s that technology progressed to the point where newspapers were laid out by computer rather than physically typeset at the print works. Newspapers had already been in flux for more than 20 years. Well before journalism jobs began to vanish, the printers had been the first losers as newspapers made their digital progress. Far fewer staff were needed once the layouts arrived electronically. Rounds of cost saving on subbing occurred even before the turn of the century. Take a local weekly newspaper. There'd be a busy couple of days for the subs shortly before the paper went to press, but quiet days too. Computerisation meant that subbing could be centralised across a few papers in common ownership. Now, at a centralised sub hub, every day was busy, and fewer subs were needed across a company that owned a lot of papers. It meant less local knowledge too, of course. But to those who needed to make short-term decisions about finances the savings outweighed the subtle fall in quality. And now Fairfax and News Limited moved to outsourcing the subbing away from the newsroom entirely. Thanks to the soaring Australian dollar in 2012, it was cost-effective for Fairfax Media to send the production to its offices in New Zealand, where subs cost the equivalent of half the Australian salary. The company had set up a sub-hub in Wellington in 2008 called Fairfax Editorial Services. In May 2012, Fairfax Media announced it was moving production on most of the company's Australian regional papers, 
including the Illawarra Mercury and the Newcastle Herald, over to New Zealand. And in January 2013, the company opened another sub-hub in Auckland, outsourcing copy-subbing of the Australian Financial Review and BRW magazine too. Only design and layout would stay in the Australian Financial Review's Sydney newsroom. The sub-hubs struggled to keep up with demand as more Australian newspaper production was outsourced to them, inevitably with no local knowledge and too much copy to be edited. Quality fell. Back in Australia, most of the subs had been made redundant, so there was nobody left to give articles a final proofread. Journalist Rachel Buchanan would later write about the experience of working in the Wellington sub-hub, doing production for the Illawarra Mercury and the Newcastle Herald, in her melancholic memoir on what she labelled the last days of newspapers, Stop Press. The remaining subs on the Mercury and the Herald left. The people who remained had less time to read through every single story to find our errors. Still, we were missing deadlines. In Australia, the delivery trucks were leaving late. Targets were introduced. We were told to work on 30 stories per shift. It's worth considering that number for a moment. Take 30 articles from a newspaper if you have one near you. Imagine how long it would take to truly understand each finished article. Now consider the work it took to get to that point. Ideally checking spellings, chasing down missing information, thinking of a good headline. 30 in a day? One every 15 minutes? Impossible. That quality assurance of having another human, other than the reporter, think deeply about every article was vanishing. As Buchanan wrote, I was so enraged by this order that I became determined to do even more, to do a ludicrous amount. On the 12th of October 2012, I wrote down the slug of every story I touched. The total was 47. I barely took a break. Good, said one of the bosses. Keep going. I felt a twisted thrill. And the outsourcing was not just to Fairfax's New Zealand offices. In late 2011 came the end of the era. Production of Fairfax's Metro titles, the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and the Canberra Times was outsourced to Pagemasters, which was owned by the industry's newswire agency, AAP. News Limited followed suit on outsourcing to Pagemasters in September 2012, after first trialling its own News Central subbing operation. The breakneck pace for those working there saw Pagemasters acquire the nickname Slavemasters. Readers noticed. I am becoming very concerned that editorial standards at the Herald are dropping rapidly, wrote one reader, as Sydney Morning Herald readers editor Judy Prisk reported in one of her final columns. I know you have outsourced your sub-editing, but surely someone there can proofread before you publish such appalling errors, wrote another. After explaining to readers how the production process used to work, Prisk expanded. But that was then, and this is now. Then, there were three or four deadlines a night. Now, with a 24-hour news cycle, there is a never-ending deadline. Then, There was a huge bank of in-house sub-editorial staff. Now, sub-editing has been outsourced. Then, the print edition was the main focus. Now, stories go online first. 
except in special circumstances. The world had changed, wrote Prisk. Back in the day, reporters would file their copy and hope for a good sub. Now that the industry has moved forward, there is a strong possibility that will not afford a good outcome. The non-good outcome would memorably show up on the front page of the Australian Financial Review a year and a half later. To save time, a news page is usually designed before the final copy arrives, withholding headlines to be replaced with the real words later. In much the same way that radio and TV journalists are drilled to always treat the microphone as live, reporters and subs are counselled not to put jokes on the dummy pages to amuse colleagues, just in case it ends up in print. During the afternoon of the 23rd of April 2014, long before the paper was ready to go to press, a member of staff in the Sydney newsroom accidentally sent a file of an early version of the front page to the paper's print centres around the country. Realising the error, the page was soon recalled, or so they thought. The first that the staff of the Australian Financial Review knew that something had gone wrong was the next morning when images of the Perth edition of the paper began to circulate on Twitter. The wrong version of the front page had been printed and was now on sale across the city. One of the headlines was a journalistic primal scream. World is fucked. The headline captured the imagination of the press around the world, with reports of the mishap appearing in everything from the Times of India to the Himalayan Times. Dare Iced Coffee ran an opportunistic ad campaign on Facebook next to an image of the front page, The world may be fucked, but at least we still have dare. Hashtag brain fail. Aside from the human casualties of 2012, shareholders in Fairfax were suffering too. The only time the share price ever seemed to go up was when job cuts were announced, because that might temporarily improve the profit number. Hints from Reinhardt that she might dump her stock if she didn't get onto the board were not helping the share price. On Thursday the 23rd of August 2012, the company updated the ASX on how it had fared in the financial year that had ended on 30th of June. Although Fairfax had made a trading profit of $500 million, the company also announced one of the biggest write-downs in corporate Australian history. It told the ASX that it had recalculated what the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and the Australian Financial Review mastheads were worth. Whereas the estimated value of owning the three titles had previously been on the company's books for $3.25 billion, it was time to reduce that to a more realistic $1.29 billion. A couple of clicks on the spreadsheet and the papers were officially worth 60% less than they were the day before. The $2 billion write-down was a long-overdue recognition of reality. Newspapers just weren't worth what they used to be worth. Investors had come to the same conclusion long ago. It had been a while since the company's market capitalisation was over $2 billion on the ASX. The same day, the Audit Bureau of Circulations, which verifies circulation figures, held a conference at the Sydney Convention and Exhibition Centre On stage, I interviewed one of the industry's most prominent advertising buyers, John Sintras, CEO of Starcom Media Vest Group. I asked him about the Fairfax write-down, 
Sintras, something of a straight talker, summed up the situation. The sector is eating a massive shit sandwich. The Fairfax News emphasises how bad the sandwich is. If we'd started eating the sandwich 10 years earlier, it would have been a lot easier to digest. Highwood's ASX statement that day put things more politely. Despite the tough times, Fairfax is a company that is committed to growth and committed to innovation. We are investing across our digital businesses, which grew revenue by 20% this year. Digital advertising yields grew strongly as advertisers recognised the value of target demographics, the demographics that Fairfax sites attract. There was some truth in that, although, as Highwood knew, the digital business was growing from a very small base. And he was also correct to emphasise the company's audience demographics. Fairfax's Metro titles had a more upmarket audience than its tabloid rivals at News Limited. Fairfax readers were white-collar, inner-city types. News Limiteds were blue-collar and lived in the outer suburbs. When Fairfax had been in its previous high-rise offices in Sussex Street, in the Sydney CBD, the saying went that the Sydney Morning Herald staff could see all the way to Parramatta, where the Daily Telegraph's readers lived. A week later, on the 31st of August, the company's market capitalisation dropped below $1 billion for the first time in its history. And the milestones kept coming. On the 31st of October 2012, Fairfax's stock price sank to what would be the lowest in its history, 31 cents per share. Just 18 months before, there'd been consternation when the share price dropped below the daily cover price of the Sydney Morning Herald, $1.50 for the first time. Now, that looked like the good old days. Back in April 2007, the share price had peaked at $3.23, more than 10 times its new 2012 low. Now the company's market capitalisation was just $730 million. It was worth less than the $914 million it owed the banks. And 2012 finished the way it had started for Fairfax, with more pressure from Gina Reinhart for the board. On the 29th of December, adman turned media mogul John Singleton, Singo as he was universally known, inserted himself into the conversation. As one of the owners of Macquarie Radio Network, along with business partners Mark Carnegie and Russell Tate, Singleton had been trying to persuade Fairfax to sell him its radio stations. Macquarie Radio Network owned the top-rating, right-leaning Sydney talk station 2GB, home of Alan Jones and Ray Hadley, but had ambitions to be national. Fairfax Radio Network's best-performing station was 3AW in Melbourne, and it also owned 2UE, which was 2GB's only Sydney talk rival, along with 4BC in Brisbane and 6PR in Perth, plus a dozen regional stations. Once... 2UE had been the country's biggest radio station, but after losing Alan Jones to Singo's 2GB, it had gone downhill. In February 2011, 2UE had relaunched with a younger presenter lineup, which it labelled as generational change, on the assumption that Jones and Hadley would soon be retiring, which might put the 2GB audience back in play. 2UE unveiled Paul Murray 
as its new drive-time presenter. At 32, he was one of the youngest talk hosts in the country. At the launch, I'd asked 2UE's new programme director, Peter Brennan, where his station had gone wrong. The fish stinks from the head. I think it suffered from poor management, he told me. Meanwhile, Singo's own attempts to crack Melbourne's radio market had fallen flat. A joint venture with Pacific Star Network to launch conservative talkback offering Melbourne Talk Radio as a sister to 2GB had lasted only a year. Commentator Steve Price was programme director and morning host. Ratings were poor and it lost more than $6 million in its first year before going into administration in March 2012. Since then, Fairfax had signalled it was willing to sell its radio network to help reduce its debt. It wanted something like $300 million. Singleton, looking for a bargain, had offered $180 million and been rebuffed. Instead, he talked to Reinhardt. The pair issued a legal notice to the ASX, stating that the shareholdings of Reinhardt's Hancock Investing and Singleton's Guttenberg Investments were formally associated. In the statement, Singleton was quoted as saying, For the amount of money I was prepared to pay for the radio assets of Fairfax, I could buy a significant amount of all the assets of Fairfax at a far lower price-to-earnings multiple. Hence, with my preferred direct route closed, I have decided to pursue another path. However, there was a big difference between could buy and have bought. In truth, Singleton had taken a stake of less than 1%. But the sense that the vultures were circling the carcass was beginning to grow. Independent, always. The Fairfax of the Future project rolled on. March 2013 was a big month. The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald finally moved to their new compact sizes a decade after most of their broadsheet counterparts in other areas of the world. After the long wait, it was almost an anticlimax. For most of its history, Fairfax's marketing had been mediocre. Until the business model began to break, good marketing wasn't critical. The paper's journalism was the main marketing tool, and the product was the brand. But like many media companies around the world, this left the company ill-prepared when it came time to ask the public to pay for digital subscriptions. Culturally, Fairfax had given even less priority to marketing skills than its biggest rival had. Whereas News Corp was developing a habit of hiring and promoting qualified marketers into bigger roles within the business, Fairfax had gone the opposite way. Robert Whitehead, who had been editor of the Sydney Morning Herald from 2000 to 2005, but had no formal marketing credentials, had moved sideways and led the newspaper's marketing since 2005. In terms of modern marketing practice, there would have been few consumer-facing ASX companies that were further away from the cutting edge. The final weekday broadsheet of the Sydney Morning Herald featured a four-page cover wrap to promote the switch to compact size. It was thoroughly uninspiring. Smudgily printed with a light beige background and the empty slogan, No No Boundaries, the wrap featured a short message from new Sydney Morning Herald editor-in-chief, Sean Aylmer, 
and images of the publication's weekday liftouts. The back page of the pullout was so amateurish, it looked like it had been knocked together in a few minutes. It featured small images of four front pages from across the Sydney Morning Herald's history, linked by a smeary, photoshopped blur to the new look paper, next to the headline. 182 years and still evolving. New weekday compact size. I carefully filed the pullout as an example of the gap between the best of the organisation's journalism and the worst of its marketing. When the Quarterly Audit Bureau of Circulation's numbers came out in May, they showed the Sydney Morning Herald had seen an 18.2% fall in sales Monday to Friday, compared with the year before, to 148,037 copies. The age was down 12.6% to 144,277 copies. The numbers would have been even worse without the shift to compact size during the audit period. Gary Linnell, who had been rapidly promoted since rejoining the company just a year before, after a stint at News Limited, and was now editorial director, argued the numbers were better than they looked. The sales for the first month of the age in Sydney Morning Herald's Monday to Friday compact edition were up 3% compared with the previous month, largely driven by a 10% increase in retail sales during the launch week, he said. But by the time the next set of numbers came out three months later, there was no doubt that the print sales decline was resuming. Circulation of the Sydney Morning Herald fell 17% to 141,699 copies sold, while the age was down 16.2% year on year to 142,050. The falls could not be explained simply as a result of Greg Highwood's move to get rid of the dodgy free copies. They started that programme more than two years ago, media analyst Steve Allen told Mumbrella at the time. Shortly after that, we saw double-digit declines, and we would have expected those unprofitable subscriptions would have been terminated within 12 months. You might allow six months, Grace, but we are now well past that. The predictions of the newspaper extinction timeline were starting to look quite realistic. On the 6th of June 2013, Fairfax finally revealed how its online paywalls would work. Unable to quit the drug of digital advertising revenue, the company could not simply lock down all of its content as there would not be enough traffic for the advertisers. So it tried to have its cake and eat it with a metered paywall. Readers would be able to browse 30 articles per month for free before being asked to pay. Prices varied from $15 per month, simply to access the website, through to $44 per month for the website and accompanying tablet app and to receive home-delivered newspapers seven days a week. It was to launch on the 2nd of July. The announcement came the same day as that year's Mumbrella 360 conference. I moderated a panel, including Andrew Jaspin, former editor of The Age, and asked him about the future of the printed editions. Given that the bulk of print advertising is booked in the weekend editions, the Saturday and Sunday papers would last longer, suggested Jaspin. I think you'll probably see the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age stop printing within a year or two years, Monday to Friday, he predicted. Jaspin was not the only one thinking that way. Without stating timelines, 
Greg Highwood had been signalling that he expected weekday papers to come to an end sooner rather than later. In April 2013, he told the International News Media Association's World Congress in New York, The mass newspaper business, which rode a technology called print for 500 years, a pretty good run, is in its last years. We all know it is in our numbers, some more than others, but it's in our numbers. The revenues are weak and the sheer cost of physical production and distribution is too great. Later in the speech, he added, we know that at some time in the future, we will be predominantly digital or digital only in our metropolitan markets. We can't say whether it's three, five, seven or ten years, but it will happen as media consumption continues to shift and fragment and advertisers follow. During 2013, I talked to members of News Limited's marketing team in New South Wales who were indulging in a spot of game theory. If Fairfax stopped printing its weekday editions, how should News Limited's papers respond? If the age in the Sydney Morning Herald went weekend only, leaving Melbourne and Sydney as one paper tans, could Fairfax's write-on broadsheet readers be enticed across to the tabloid Herald Sun and the Telegraph? It would require a softening of the telly and the Hun's editorial stance, they concluded. But could the often ideologically driven editors be prevailed upon to move their coverage towards the centre? They weren't so sure. Around that time, I interviewed the telly's editor, Paul Whitaker, as he unveiled the paper's new We're for Sydney branding. As a reader, I'd had the view that his paper's news reporting skipped over inconvenient facts that undermined its argument when it came to covering hot-button topics like Labour's MBN. In my view, sometimes the facts were too scarce to allow readers to make up their own minds. I'm not sure as a reader, if that was where I was getting all my information from, I would feel equipped to go to a dinner party and not have the floor wiped away from under me on the facts, I put to him. Sometimes it feels like the agenda is rightly or wrongly, so much anti the MBN that I'm only getting one side of the argument. Whitaker's response said a lot about how he saw the world. Equally, I could argue that you never read a story that's critical of the MBN in the Fairfax press. You could come at it the other way. In regards to the MBN, I make no apologies for applying scrutiny to the MBN. I did the same thing at the Australian when I was editor. We're not a cheerleader for the project, and some other papers, I'd argue, are. Later, I'd interview the editor-in-chief of The Australian, Chris Mitchell, and he would also primarily see the world as his newspaper being defined by its opposition to Fairfax. It took some years for me to realise that, in debating with the News Corp editors, we were talking slightly different languages. We did not share the same worldview on what the rules of the game for newspaper journalism should be. I'd come up in a type of journalism summed up by how the Manchester Guardian editor, C.P. Scott, had put it nearly a century before, in 1921. Comment is free, but facts are sacred. The culture of News Corp editors was far more about having your reader in mind and giving them the product and worldview they wanted. Often, although not always, that aligned with Rupert Murdoch's own outlook. 
the question of whether an editor's job is to give an audience what they want or what they ought to know has a vast effect on how a newspaper reports the news. With Australian politics polarised and a growing perception that most of News Corp's titles were aligning with the coalition, Highwood decided it was time to make more of a public virtue of the independence of Fairfax editors. He ditched the Sydney Morning Herald's No No Boundaries and the Age's Forever Curious advertising slogans, which had both been introduced under soon-to-be-departing marketing boss Whitehead seven months before. Instead, both newspapers would have a new line underneath their mastheads. Independent. Always. In the announcement of the new position, Highwood said, Fairfax's greatest strength as a news organisation is its independent journalism. Our audiences want it, they value it. Others won't and can't deliver it. The move would have been unwelcome for Gina Reinhardt, who had still not been granted the board seats she wanted. She finally walked away, selling her Fairfax shares in February 2015. Her executive, John Klepek, told The Australian, a series of bad decisions made by the leadership team has instead increased the number of publication errors and reduced the company's performance to cover news to standards expected to maintain the credibility of some of the oldest and finest newspaper mastheads in the country. With a nod towards her investment in 10, Fairfax fired back via Mumbrella. We expect Mrs Reinhardt's investments in Fairfax has been one of her better media investments. Her fellow traveller, John Singleton, stayed quiet. After years of rivalry, Sydney's two talkback stations, 2GB and 2UE, were now stablemates. Two months before, he'd thrown his lot in with Fairfax and agreed to become a minority shareholder in a merger between Macquarie Radio Network and the Fairfax Radio Network, which would create the new Macquarie Media Group. In business terms, the angle of Fairfax's dive was still downwards, but less steep. Highwood's radical surgery on the costs of creating and printing Fairfax's newspapers had improved the bottom line, but the company's overall position was still worsening. More cost cuts would follow. In October 2013, the company axed its glossy Sydney and Melbourne monthly magazines, which were inserted into the newspapers on a Friday, along with quarterly titled Financial Review Capital, which meant another 45 redundancies. The news came in a note to staff from Alan Williams, managing director of the company's Australian publishing media division. It's no secret to anyone in the media business that magazines have been an increasingly challenged platform. The Sydney, Melbourne titles have been great magazines, but it makes commercial sense to make these changes. Ten days later, an even more famous masthead vanished as a standalone title. BRW, which had once been one of Australia's most significant business magazines, as Business Review Weekly, became a monthly insert given away with the newspapers. Yet ASX investors remained unenthusiastic about the Fairfax stock. Newspapers were simply a declining sector, and the demands of the ASX are unforgiving. An update every quarter, 
closely scrutinised half-yearly results and annual results, which are then put under the microscope at an annual general meeting. Every update is taken as a signal on whether to buy or sell. Compared to rival News Corp, which was dual-listed in New York and Sydney, with the Australian arm just a small part of the business, every tiny mistake by Fairfax was magnified. Highwood needed to create a story for the market which went beyond printed newspapers. He needed to be able to talk about new sources of revenue. At the November 2013 annual general meeting, he unveiled four initiatives. The company would look for more money from running events. It would chase the content marketing bubble by making branded content on behalf of brands. It would sell digital marketing services to the SME, small and medium-sized enterprises, sector, and it would embrace data. As part of these new pushes, two more executives joined the company for what would be short stints. Adam Warden, a former consultant for Accenture and Bain & Co, joined as Group Director of Transformation. And Andrew McAvoy, the boss of Tourism Australia and former acquaintance of Greg Highwood, was an expensive hire, joining as head of the company's events division. Warden would stay for just over a year, while McAvoy was there for three years of what he had flagged was a four-year plan. Even by the next year's annual general meeting, little more would be heard of the SME push and the data play. Plenty of communications agencies were already out in the industry doing it better. The content marketing drive, headed by Simon Smith, met with some success. At the very least, it gave advertising salespeople another thing to talk to clients about. The highest profile initiative of the four was McAvoy's events division. His brief was to build on the company's existing portfolio of events, which had sprung up organically over the years. The best-known event in the portfolio was the City to Surf charity run from Sydney CBD to Bondi Beach. Other events already established, including the Sydney Night Noodle Market and Good Food Month. The rationale was that the marketing heft of Fairfax newspapers and radio stations would be able to promote new events. The biggest barrier was the existence of plenty of established players in the competitive sector, and the fact that McAvoy had never run an events business before. In press briefings, McAvoy talked about the company's plans to buy other event businesses and maintain high profit margins while tripling the size of the events division over four years. The biggest new initiative under McAvoy was the Spectrum Now Festival, which was announced in September 2014 and ran over 18 days the following March. After the low turnout opening weekend, the company had blown out the budget, booking extra musical acts for the second weekend, signing Sneaky Sound System, The Cat Empire and Angus and Julia Stone to perform. It would later, somewhat implausibly, claim 9,000 people had attended the first weekend and 60,000 the second. A few months on, McAvoy spoke on stage at Mumbrella's published conference. By then, he appeared to be scaling back his ambitions. Acquisitions were no longer the plan. We're probably better off growing where our core strengths are, he told the audience. Fairfax's 2017 annual report suggested that profitability of the events division had been elusive. It said, After three years of rapid expansion 
Events is focused on consolidating its portfolio and optimising for profitability. It was all very well organising new events, but the company actually needed them to be profitable, and that had been harder. McAvoy departed a few days later. The Blue Team Sydney Office Space offers some intriguing media echoes. In Piermont, Google took over what was once Fairfax Media's Sydney headquarters. In Surrey Hills, online youth publisher Junkie Media was run from the expensively decorated office space previously occupied by MySpace. And in Chippendale, Mumbrella's office stood on the corner of Balfour Street and Queen Street, close to the spot where in 1960 the employees of the Packers and the Murdochs fought for control of Anglican Press printworks. And then there was an office in Crown Street, Surrey Hills, directly above trendy Bill's Cafe. Once it was home to MCM Entertainment, for a time one of the biggest players in Australian radio syndication and a promising innovator in video streaming technology. And for five brief months, it would house a team of nearly 50 people, secretly working out a plan to save two of Australia's most important newspapers. Those who cared about newspapers were becoming resigned to the fact that Australia was about to lose the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. The drumbeat that only the weekend editions would stay in print was getting louder. Yet there were no prominent examples for which a move by a newspaper to a digital product had been something other than a last, failed throw of the dice. Beloved pets go to a farm, failing newspapers go digital only. Tackily, bookmakers William Hill issued a press release in May 2016 headed The Newspaper Death Sentence, offering odds on which Australian paper would close first. The age was favourite at $2.60, while the Sydney Morning Herald wasn't far behind on $3.20. If journalism was to be saved, there were no playbooks to be found overseas. In the US, many city newspapers had already closed. Two paper towns had become one paper towns, and one paper towns were being left without a paper at all. In part, that was newspaper economics although it was also exacerbated by the fact that many US papers were owned by debt-laden companies. The only US papers that seemed to be healthy were the Washington Post, which was bought in 2013 by wealthy Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, News Corp's Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times, which was cementing its position as the global newspaper of record in digital subscriptions. In the UK, the national market had been retreating, In 1995, News Corp's Today newspaper had been the first national daily to drop out of the market in a generation. The independent newspaper had kicked off the trend of switching from broadsheet to compact in 2003, but was now on its last legs, with the final printed edition soon to follow, prior to an afterlife as a clickbaity website. Fairfax would have to figure out the problem for itself. The 2012 cuts had won the company a little more time. The purchase of Anthony Catalano's real estate offering, The Weekly Review, was helping Domain take on the News Corp-aligned REA group. And there were early signs that the investment in Stan 
which had launched in 2015, was working. Greg Highwood took an approach that had never been attempted before. He recruited Chris Jans to lead what he labelled the blue business, and Alan Williams, managing director of the Australian Publishing Media Division, was in charge of the white business. The blue team was about the future. The white team needed to help the company survive long enough to get there. Jans was ideally qualified. He was a former journalist who had worked across both newspapers and online. He had some coding skills and he'd run a business. He was also temperamentally suited, clever, likeable, and with a background that gave him credibility with both journalists and commercial people. He'd become interested in the web at high school, which led to him starting an IT and business degree before switching over to journalism at the University of Queensland. He'd worked on the Australian IT, a Tuesday section of the Australian, in the dot-com boom times when more than 100 pages of job ads was not unusual. By 2002, he'd been one of the original editors of News Limited's news.com.au. After leaving News Limited in 2006, Jans had been online manager of TV production company Southern Star. And in 2007, Jans had shown his entrepreneurial side, launching Allure Media, which was backed by tech investment company Netus. Allure had a relatively unusual franchise model for Australia, offering localised versions of big overseas pop culture sites, including Defamer, Business Insider, Pop Sugar and Lifehacker. After Netus was bought by Fairfax, Jans had consulted for a year before becoming CEO of HuffPost Australia, the joint venture between Fairfax and Huffington Post's US owner, AOL. Highwood's brief to Jans was something few organisations had cracked to come up with a workable business model that would allow quality journalism to survive. It was assumed that the product would focus on how to rapidly grow the company's sluggish online subscriptions ahead of the death of print. Jan slipped away from the HuffPo without much of a ripple. Little was said about what he would get up to in his new role as Fairfax's Director of Publishing Innovation. Needing a more creative atmosphere, independent of the day-to-day distractions of the Piermont offices, Jans began to build the leadership of Team Blue at the Shadow Fairfax office on Crown Street. Normally, there would have been industry press releases to announce hires of the calibre of Jans's growing team. Most of the people who had run the new Fairfax were new to the company. Jess Ross, who'd run subscription marketing for the US consumer organisation Witch, came on board as Chief Product Officer. Damien Cronin, who had just led the technical build of streaming service Stan and before then had led technology at 9MSN and real estate startup My Home, came on board as Chief Technology Officer. Matt Rowley, who'd launched the content marketing division of Australia's biggest business-to-business publisher, Cirrus Media, was to be Chief Revenue Officer. David Eisman, already working at Fairfax in a strategy role, became Jans's right-hand man, and would later become director of subscriptions and growth. This wasn't just some sort of glorified strategic consultancy. It was a start-up. 
the blue team would have to build the technology needed to replace the existing platforms and execute the plan at breakneck speed. When the blue business took charge, the newspaper websites would move across onto brand new digital platforms better suited to driving online subscriptions. Highwood recalls, it was a bit like trying to change engines on a plane in mid-air. It was incredibly stressful and difficult. We had to hold everyone's morale together to make this work. It was important that there was no politics and that everybody involved in the white business knew they would be looked after once the changes were made. Jans puts it similarly. You're trying to keep the plane flying while you're renovating it. As the weeks turned into months, the blue business eventually grew to nearly 50 people who knew that one day, soon, they would need to walk into Fairfax's headquarters in Piermont and take control of the plane. The blue team was based in an open plan office. There was a room for holding focus groups at one end and there was a balcony where the staff would hold Friday afternoon barbecues after growing to the point where they could no longer fit in any of the local burger joints. At 9.15am every Monday, there was a standing meeting in which everybody talked about what they were working on. We needed a completely open and transparent culture, says Jans. There were no meetings before the meetings to agree the outcome, and very little happened behind closed doors. And on Fridays at 3.30pm, the teams would share with the group the progress they had been making. In Piermont, Alan Williams was kept up to date about the work being done by the people who would replace him. Jans says, Alan's part was to keep things going until we were ready. He knew exactly what was going on and we knew that we'd be taking over the business and we had to be ready. Just a few months before the blue business started work in August 2016, Highwood had told the Macquarie Investment Conference that it was inevitable that weekday printing would soon end. Says Jans, the original brief was to build a digital business. We were supposed to be out of print Monday to Friday in 2017. The weekend papers, which sold better and attracted more ads, would survive longer. But as the blue team worked through likely scenarios, something else became clear. It made more sense to keep the Metro newspapers than to close them. Jan says the conclusion was gradual rather than in a single light bulb moment. Closing the papers might save a lot of money, but it would also cost a lot of reader and advertiser revenue that wouldn't come across to digital. There would also be a huge loss of relevance. It became evident very early on that the newspapers had such scale and influence that we needed to find a way to keep them, says Jans. Newspapers were still such a powerful piece of people's lives. One of the keys to the rebirth was reminding the audience that this is the thing they value and it has such a powerful role in how they start their day. It was about taking a step back and looking at the business with fresh eyes. The exit from print was not six months away. It was a decade or more away. Keeping the Metro papers in print would only work if yet more costs could be taken out. And the blue team needed to plan for that. If the existence of the blue team had leaked early, particularly the fact that there will be more job cuts, it would have been a disaster for the already demoralised company. 
In March 2016, staff had walked out in protest at a round of 120 job cuts. Somehow, in the leakiest of industries, no gossip escaped from the blue team. According to Jans, I knew it wouldn't. I trusted everyone in the group. We shared a common purpose. They wanted to do this because they were proud of the journalism and they cared about the newspapers and they did not accept their demise as a given. By the end of 2016, it became clear that Fairfax's revenues were crumbling even faster than expected. Revenues had dropped from $2.47 billion in the 2011 financial year to $2.3 billion in 2012 to $2.03 billion in 2013, to $1.87 billion in 2014, to $1.84 billion in 2015. There'd been a moment when the drop seemed to be easing, with revenues almost flattening to $1.83 billion in the 2016 financial year, which ended on the 30th of June. But over the next six months, the rate of fall got worse again, By December 2016, revenues to the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and the Australian Financial Review were down another 8.2%. What wasn't helping was that the media agencies had heard so much about the end of print that they were turning their backs on the printed medium. Year on year, advertising spend on newspapers by media agencies had fallen by 25%, monitoring service Standard Media Index revealed. So the launch date was moved up to the 14th of February 2017, the day that the blue business would become the white business. On Valentine's Day, the blue team walked into the offices at Piermont and took charge. Jans was announced as the managing director across Fairfax's Metro Publishing Division, covering The Age, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Australian Financial Review. Williams was given the new title of Director of Publishing Transition. He'd be looking after the community papers. The community papers were not in Fairfax's long-term future plan. In a memo to staff, which was intentionally leaked to the outside world, Highwood wrote, Chris has been overseeing the impressive product and technology development work that will be the centrepiece of Metro's next generation publishing model. While we have considered many options, the model we have developed involves continuing to print our publications daily for some years yet. A week later, Highwood went even further on the message that print extinction was cancelled. Not quite conceding it was a U-turn, he told investors, We have looked at all options. And while Monday to Friday can't ever be off the table, because it may well be the right thing for shareholders down the track, our view is that for some years yet, six and seven day publishing is the best commercial outcome for shareholders. Initially, the arrival of the blue team seemed like just another round of bad news to the staff. To make the plan viable, more jobs would need to go from the newsrooms to save another $30 million dollars. Announcing the cuts on the 5th of April, Jan said, With the proposed changes to the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, Brisbane Times and WA Today newsrooms announced today, we will have completed the major structural editorial changes required to secure 
our metropolitan mastheads. The primary focus of Fairfax Media over recent years has been to lay the groundwork for the creation of a sustainable publishing model. We are now within reach of that goal. Unsurprisingly, when Jans talked to the newsroom, he was met with hostility. It looked like just one more round of cuts. I told them that if nothing changes, we will be making redundancies every six months, says Jans. But what we were doing would be the last one that's ever going to take place. I stood up and they were hurling abuse. The gut reaction was that they'd heard it all before. When the detail of the cuts, which would include another 125 job losses, was revealed at the beginning of May, most of the journalists in Sydney and Melbourne voted to go on strike for a week, wiping out most of the company's coverage of the federal budget. By relying on wire copy and covering the news themselves, management still got the papers out. During the strike, Highwood spoke again at the Macquarie Investment Conference, a year on from suggesting that weekday printing was coming to an end. We respect our staff for the passion they have for independent, high-quality journalism, said Highwood. We share it, but we know what it takes to make our kind of journalism sustainable. Passion alone won't cut it. For the rest of the decade, Jans kept his promise. It was the last of the redundancy rounds. That was the latest chapter of my narration of my book, Media Unmade. You can buy the book online and at all good bookstores. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, if you want to hear all future chapters, you'll need to be a paying subscriber of Unmade. You can sign up at unmade.media. That's the URL, simply unmade.media. Once you do, it only takes a couple of clicks to add the paid-for feed to the podcast app of your choice. The book was written and recorded in northwest Tasmania, on the land of the Palawa people. This podcast is produced with the enthusiastic help of Abe's Audio. For voiceovers and audio production, from corporate to commercial, go to abesaudio.com.au. I'll be back with the next chapter soon. Toodle pip.